Why, hello everybody. Before we dive into today's episode, it is once again time to talk about Fangoria Magazine. We love those scoundrels over at Fango, don't we, Scott? Oh, we love them. They're the best, except for Phil. Yes. Well, he's only like half best. He's all right sometimes. I love I love Phil. I, I thought I was playing around to play into your your little faux uh competition thing you have with that dude. Well, the the ad read for Fango is perhaps not the time to be dragging <laughs> Phil to to Helen back, but um, <laughs> so I'll I'll shoot right up the middle there. It's all right sometimes. <laughs> Perfect. And it's very political. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all collected issues back in the day of Fango. Some some of us had to hide them. Some of us didn't. Uh, my parents were very forgiving, so uh, I, I could have whatever around. They didn't give a shit. But I we've heard many stories of people who had to hide their their old issues of Fango like they were porn. But now we have this new iteration that is super fancy, highly collectible, and delivered right to your door quarterly. These stunning issues tend to sell out, but you can make sure you never miss one single issue by ordering yourself an annual subscription. To do so, head over to Fangoria.com and make sure to enter in the promo code KINKASS at checkout for 25% off your annual subscription. And with all of that said, on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad rub! Bad rub! Ah! You see a dead body? Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today's topic, Revival, and our guest is the writer-director of a ton of really good movies, including Ain't Them Body Saints, A Ghost Story, The Old Man and the Gun, Pete's Dragon, and the brand spanking new A24 joint, The Green Knight. Now he's here to talk about the good old Reverend Jacobs, Ants, and what I personally consider to be a standout book in King's uh, more recent work. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Lowry to the KingCast stage. Thanks for having me. So excited to have you here. Eric and I just saw The Green Knight the other day. Saw it together, holding hands through the whole thing. Loved it. Perfect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. As, as you should. You should um, hold hands. You don't have to love it, but you should hold hands. My only note on this movie is that it kind of breaks a streak that you've had. And that's sort of upsetting. And that's that all your other movies have made me sob uncontrollably. And uh, The Green Knight didn't. And I was I was really expecting to get my cry on for one reason or another during this thing. It wasn't that kind of movie. It so, was meant to be a comedy. Like my initial thought was I I was gonna I was gonna finally write something funny, and maybe I veered away from that a little bit. But that it probably, is kind of funny though. It should be. Yeah, there's there's a couple of guffaws in there. Yeah, and it's it's deeply weird. And by the way, we're recording this a couple of weeks in advance of anyone hearing it. But when this movie comes out, are, are you concerned at all about people that might be expecting? Uh, swords and sorcery and fighting and and what have you versus what the Green Knight actually is? Or are you just like, fuck that, this is the movie I made? A little bit of both. I mean, I, I'm not expecting the cinema score to be too stellar on this movie, but I think that the, people who, <laughs> the people who love it will probably love it. And hopefully there are some people who go in there expecting Lord of the Rings and get the Green Knight instead and, and on wind up pleasantly surprised. Now, those are always the best experiences, though. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I always have a go-to example of this because when I was 13, uh, I went out to go watch a double feature. 
And uh, it was like a friend of a family who was like my movie buddy would like pick me up over the weekends and we'd go watch movies. And and she really, really wanted to go see this this art house movie that I was zero had zero interest in. And I really wanted to go see Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein because that was that was the cool thing. And uh, I can appreciate Frankenstein now kind of looking back on it. But uh, at the time, I'm like, what the fuck is this? This isn't right. this isn't a, a, a monster movie. This isn't fun. You know, this isn't a fun movie. This is a, a sad, serious, depressing movie. And so then I was really bummed out because we watched that first and I hated yeah. it. And then I had to go see this dumb art house movie and that dumb art house movie, you know, starring the guy from fucking look who's talking and it was Pulp Fiction and uh, my, mind was, my mind was like just blown. And, uh, you know, so I don't know. There, there's something to, you know, g- give them uh, an uppercut when they're not looking for it. Totally my, or something to my, I remember going to see uh, or watching Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man with my dad because it was a Western. You know, and my dad <laughs> okay. liked wrestling. <laughs> and, and that was another one where it's like, that wasn't what we were expecting, but man that wound up we, we had a lot of interesting discussions afterwards and it wound up being one of my favorite movies and so you know you get those those secret unexpected uh you know movies that aren't what you sit down to see but really you know come up and uh and and become revelatory in an unexpected fashion mm-hmm. those are the, those are the ones i love do you think after after i saw the movie uh i was talking about it on twitter and was like this is you know the wildest or strangest movie that Lowry has made yet. As soon as I published that tweet, I was like, do I believe that? Is it stranger than a ghost story? And I couldn't really decide. <laughs> I guess it depends. And ultimately, I decided it depends on how you look at it. Yeah. But I'm curious if you think it's stranger than a ghost story. No, I think a ghost story is stranger just because of the sheer nature of the concept of that movie. Just the the conceit of a ghost story is so ridiculous, and the fact that it works somehow. It, yeah, you know, if you if you were to have a a more traditional looking ghost in that movie, sure, it would be less strange. But because we, you know, the whole conceit was a was a bedsheet, I mm-hmm. think that puts it in a stranger category. I think that Green Knight is if it makes it's sort of I don't like saying this, but it's trippier. I guess you know it's yeah. not. Both literally and, you know, figuratively, it's a little bit more psychedelic, perhaps, although not as far as it could have been. No so giant new weird. giants in <laughs> a ghost story. I'm just going to say that. No, but but it's also very much, you know, everything in there is when you're making a fantasy movie, you you sort of have permission to be weird in a strange way. Like giants fit into the tapestry of that world in a way that, you know, if they showed up in a ghost story, it wouldn't have worked. The same yeah. <laughs> although at one point, at one point in a ghost story, there was going to be. I really like the idea in a ghost story of like that not only was time becoming more malleable, but space was. And at one point the ghost was going to become gigantic and just tower over, you know, the planet earth. For um, real? Yeah. And it just didn't look good. Like, you know, there's certain, there's a lot of stuff in that movie that, you know, we, we, we shot or that we tried out or we planned that just because of the conceit of the bed sheet, it didn't look as cool as we thought it would. So <laughs> you're on set. Like what's the biggest sheet we can get? <laughs> exactly. We had to do it practically. That's why I didn't want. We had to do it practically, and we ran out of fabric. <laughs> um, I, I do want to ask about those new giants, though. Listen, I'm a very simple man. Some might say a stupid man. I have no idea how to interpret those those giants, and I would imagine it's meant to be open to interpretation. And I'm curious what yours is. Like, what is what is happening in that sequence? They are, I would say. A a race of beings that are better than mankind mm-hmm. who have had their fill of man and are taking leave of right our on. world. Yeah. Fed up with our a little Tolkien-ish. A, I, I can a, see that. 
there's a, a moment of communion there in which they have a, a shared moment of appreciation for, for all that has been lost. And all of the, I mean, this, you get, you can hit the nail on the head a little bit more squarely when you note that all of the giants are female. Right. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of a fantastic planet, the design on the creatures and I love planet. fantastic planet. I really How great love is that, that thing. Movie. Right. That movie is incredible. <laughs> I, oh, I, I rewatched it a couple of weeks ago or a couple months ago and, and um, it's just, it's incredible. And also as a fellow Prometheus fan, I mean, I have <laughs> to imagine that you've also noticed this, that the, the engineers are just a carbon copy in terms of costume design of the creatures in fantastic planet. Oh, totally. Absolutely. And in fact, I was wondering which of us was going to be the first one to bring up Prometheus on this on this episode. <laughs> That's my, this is my, I, I've told this story a lot. I, I don't think I've told it on this show, but uh, one of my absolute favorite moments ever doing interviews was I walked into an interview with David for, I think it was Pete's Dragon, because I don't I think, think so, it was a yeah. ghost story. And they're, you know, they, like when you walk into a, a junket interview, they'll be like, this is so-and-so and this is the outlet they write for. And so they introduced me. And David, <laughs> David immediately goes, he's like, ah, Scott Mobler here to talk about Prometheus, I presume. <laughs> I wouldn't shut up about it on Birth Movie's death. <laughs> oh, and it, oh, that made my fucking day. Oh, it was great. Well, You're well, really someday, good at get a, getting the press on your side. I got to tell you. We'll, someday we'll get to have a long conversation on my Alien podcast. That I'll have someday about how Alien 3, the director's <laughs> cut, is the best or the worst, oh. the best Alien film. Yes, I am there in a heartbeat. You need to launch that shit immediately. Okay. Well, uh, I suppose, Eric, do you have any other questions about The Green Knight? I think I kind of monopolized that. I do. I, I, I'm, you, maybe it's just because I have Stephen King on the brain um, and I know he must have been pulling from a lot of the same mythology. I couldn't help but get a Dark Tower feel from the movie, which I fucking loved. I mean, it's an Arthurian, you know, legend anyway, which is very tied into king's dark tower stuff there's a uh you have a billy bumbler essentially in this in this thing with the talking fox it was well, a journey movie which is what the dark yeah. tower is as well and then like some of the asides that that he runs into is very dark towerish i mean the whole uh aaron kellyman section felt very dark towery so i i don't know if you fuck around with dark tower or not but uh, it was definitely an observation i wanted to bring up i have not as of yet but i will one day and and i i have to admit that listening to this podcast has made me all the more excited to one day delve fully into that that mythos. Oh man, and you would flip out for it. You're going to go so up your alley, lose your fucking mind reading the Dark Tower. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm surprised that you haven't read it. Honestly, that seems like. I mean, you told me that you got the idea <laughs> for the Green Knight while setting up a diorama of Willow action figures in your backyard. That's correct. Yeah. If this that video, sounds you... like the behavior of a man who's read the Dark Tower. I know. <laughs> That's it's, all so, I'm it's so strange. I, I really have not read much fantasy. And I think the reason I never, and you know, we'll get into this when talking about my history with Stephen King, but I've never delved into the Dark Tower just because I was never drawn too terribly towards fantasy novels. And, and it's mm. sort of, Oddly, even though I really like the, the the genre, especially in film, but I've never, I've, you know, I've never read Game of Thrones. I've never delved into uh, any of the other great works of, of that genre, and I, right. I I can only assume that that's kind of why I always just you know never picked up you know the Dark Tower series. Well, to put you at ease, the fantasy elements of the Dark Tower, are like maybe a fifth of it, you know, it's a fantasy as often as it's horror or western or sci-fi or like yeah. it's everything at once you know so well, and this, 
especially that first book. I, there, there's an ongoing argument between Wampler and myself about whether or not newbies should skip that first book and save it for later. Uh, but you in particular, I think, would just eat up the gunslinger, which is kind mm-hmm. of a weird. It gets metaphysical. It's it's funky. It feels like a movie you would make, to be honest. And uh, uh, yeah, but it's also kind of have has like a, a broad appeal. And you know, you're with the characters and you understand the the characters. And so it's I, I don't find it confusing, but it, it is a little much for I think an average uh reader somebody who just picks up king you know when they're jumping on an airplane or something you know that i can understand them not not digging into the the dark tower right away uh but i i have a feeling like if you picked up that first book um you'd have it read in like a sitting for sure he would and you saying that indicates you know exactly what i'm talking about when i say it would be better for some people to skip the first book and come back to it yeah and i still hold hold to the my stance that if you are that much of a casual and you can't stick with it, then you don't deserve the dark tower. So you don't have to, de- <laughs> you know, you have to making it personal now, denigrating some of our, <laughs> some of our readers or listeners, you know, but, but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> David, we don't want you to witness this mom and dad fighting. Let's talk about your, your backstory with Stephen King. What's your, what's your Stephen King origin story? I've been trying to, you know, recall the specifics of it. You know, as soon as I, I mean, made the plans for me to, to to join you guys here, because of course, listening to the podcast, I get to hear everyone's Stephen yes. King origin story. Mm. And I think I came to him a little later. It was between the ages of eleven and thirteen, and I've been trying to find like some clue in my old like <laughs> you know junior high journals or something that would like ex- you know suggest to me exactly when I first read him. The first exposure I think was Stand by Me on television, um, mm-hmm. and. I want to say that after watching that, I went to the library and checked out different seasons and devoured it. And that was the, that, that opened the gates, so to speak. No, there may have been a hell hell of a collection. There may, it was great. It's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, I may have read Salem's lot before then. I don't know for sure because a friend of mine down the street, uh, had a copy of it or his mom had a copy of it. And I remember taking that home and that could have occurred before, the stand by me introduction, but whatever, whatever the case, you know, somewhere in that period between the ages of 11 and 13, I discovered him and voraciously devoured not everything, but quite a bit. And it was one of those periods where I not only read his books, but I also, the, the library had a bunch of biographies of him or at least two. And I remember reading mm-hmm. his biography and getting really into uh, him as a human being and as a person and as a writer and of course, you know, later on, just fell in love with the on writing when that was released. But I was always fascinated with him just as a writer. And one of my favorite things back then was in Misery, all of the details he put in about the writerly life. And even the book mm. that, he, that, that, the, that the author was writing in that, in that novel, I was more captivated by that than the actual <laughs> story. And I remember reading those passages over and over and over again. I was, I was you know, an aspiring novelist of my, at, at that time myself. I was trying to like write my first novel. And so anything, anything that, you know, pertained to the process of writing, I was just really, really fascinated with. And he has always been so good at exposing that in his own work, you know, whether it's in, in misery or last year in, in, in let it bleed, he did it again with the, the story about the rat. I, I love reading Stephen King writing about writing, whether it's in his fiction or nonfiction. Horror has always been my favorite genre ever since I was a little kid, you know, with the universal monster movies. And I think 
King really opened up an expansive universe of horror to me. Like that really broadened my perspective of of the ways yeah. in which horror can function. You know, I think it's pretty universal, especially hearing you guys talk about it with so many wonderful guests. Everyone's kind of kind of discovers them at roughly the same point. And for a lot of people, it really, you know, in some ways sets you on a course. Uh, I haven't made a horror movie yet, but someday I will. It's my, you know, one of my life goals. And, and it is, it is my favorite genre. It's, it's the genre I turn to the most. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with the way King wired my brain at, the, at an early age. Mm. I was going to ask when you were going to do a horror movie, because, you know, you say you're not much of a fantasy guy, but you're over here making quite a few fantasy movies i would say. i've been talking about it in in interviews a lot you know i think all of my movies are fairy tales that's the best way i would describe them. like even the even the like ain't the body saints like i always picture that as like that's like a western fairy tale or, mm-hmm. or like a, a western version of like the odyssey or something like that and they all kind of have a bedtime story feel so inev- in- inevitably at some point i'm going to do a scary bedtime story <laughs> it's going to and I, my my hope is that I, I want to make a movie that is so scary that I don't want to edit it alone at night. That's like, that's my goal. <laughs> Something that scares me too much to really like look at the footage. What do you think of King's output on film? What are your favorites of the adaptations? It is almost a cliche to name the favorites because they're the best. Right. You know, you've got, you you definitely with The Shining and Carrie, you you kind of like have a real high watermark really early on. Mm-hmm. Um, Shawshank, of course, is it's great. Like, like these movies that have become so great that it's, it's almost like a cliche and you're like, you start poking them like, are they really that yeah. great? And then you watch them again. And you're like, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's great. There's no, there's no arguing with that. Like Shawshank is a dad movie. Yes. It plays on TNT a lot. Yes. It's still a freaking great movie. Yeah, um, yeah, it's all, a the, all the holes you think you might be able to poke in it. Don't really, don't really add up to much. It, 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 it's like the anti-cynical movie because you put it on with that point of view. You're like, okay, well, let's see Mr. IMDb's best movie ever. Let's see. <laughs> let's see how you hold up and you just you just fall into it. Like all that dissolves in the first five minutes and you're just into that movie. Yeah, exactly. And and I like a lot of the, you know, the other stuff, like especially when I was younger, like going to Blockbuster Video, you just check out whatever random horror movie, you know, came out. And a lot of them were Stephen King, which is how you wind up seeing like, lawnmower man and, and sleepwalkers which i like <laughs> you know and, and i i haven't rewatched them but i suspect that if i were to you know especially after listening to you guys talk about them i probably would still like them another one that i i liked when i was little uh was the langoliers even though at the time i, I like oh buddy it was very like it was very obvious to me that those were horrible visual effects <laughs> like i was laughing right. them at them at the age of 12 but I remember sitting at my grandparents' house and watching that whole that whole miniseries, uh, whatever year that came out, and uh, and having a good time with it. I, I suspect I don't want to rewatch that one. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, you'll... you know, <laughs> you know, maybe leave that one alone. Yeah, you know, Pincho really just elevates that whole thing. That's the thing on Langoliers. It would be a wash, I think, without without Pincho. It's like worth seeing it for his his performance alone. But the rest In of it, th- yeah, it needs serious work. And in thinking about this, I was like, oh, and I, I liked the Children of the Corn well enough. Um, I don't know if that holds up that well, but I would like to uh, I'd like to revisit it. But that reminds me that when I was roughly at this age, I think um, maybe a little older, I was 14, I auditioned for one of those Children of the Corn direct-to-video sequels because it was being <laughs> shot. As a in, corn child? Yeah, I was you know, auditioning for some character named... Eli or something like that. I don't know. And, and I had like some evil monologue that I had to give. And they just told me to be as creepy as I possibly could. 
And so I just went all out, like full on, like Gollum voice creepy. I think they were probably <laughs> looking for something a little bit more subtle, but maybe not. I don't, I <laughs> I don't know if subtle is a word that anybody who made a, a Children of the Corn direct video movie I did, understands. I, so. I did not get that part, but um, that was like my first like brush with the industry. It was like going in for that audition. I was so excited just to like sitting in a casting director's office uh, and auditioning, like getting sides and being like, ooh, I'm getting a sneak peek at the screenplay. This is very exciting. <laughs> you don't remember which one it was, though? I mean, if I looked up, I mean, if we could we could pull up like the years that it came out, it, it would have been, it probably came out in 95 because I think the year that I did that was probably 94. I maybe think that's nine, probably maybe Urban Harvest, no? It might have been. I don't know. I don't, I'm not, I'm not... Uh, super familiar with the uh, Children of the Corn sequels. In fact, I had seen the original and was just like, I'm never going to bother watching those. And then I saw like a an animated GIF of uh, from the second one where the Children of the Corn have a remote control and a remote control car. Yeah. And they pilot a woman in a wheelchair through the front window <laughs> of a bingo parlor at like 90 miles an hour. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck is this now? So uh, I watched Children of the Corn 2 and I'm shocked as you are to be sitting here telling you I loved it. It is like a perfect slice of just early 90s basic cable cheese. You know, it's right. that yeah, exact yeah. flavor you would want. And uh, yeah, I so I recommend that one. And now I'm kind of curious about about delving into some of the other ones. Yeah, what, what could have been? Had I gotten that part, would we be sitting here talking now? <laughs> Your whole life would, would yeah. it be changed. You'd still be doing Children of the Corn sequels. Yeah, exactly. I would have, I would have been a legacy uh, corn child, and I would be coming back for like some new sequel. They're digitally uh, de-aging you, so you can yes, still play precisely. the role. What could have been? I like some of these 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 smaller adaptations. They're like like In the Tall Grass, I really enjoyed, mm. and 1922, mm-hmm, yeah. and, I, and I like this like sort of like netflix brand of like i guess they're essentially direct to video because they're going direct to netflix but like they're really well made and really i think do a good job of capturing like the the joy of reading those 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 king short stories which i think some of my greatest short story reading experiences are with his collections and and those those films have been i've really been enjoying those the netflix brand of stephen king is like Movies that are probably better than you'd expect and also wouldn't have had a shot at the box office, you know, but Precisely. we're going to bankroll them anyway, you know. Precisely. And so, you know, in the process, they're making these adaptations that, you know, Netflix is very important to the Stephen King ecosystem. You know, they're they're touching these properties that no one else would bother with as theatrical releases and like like Gerald's game for as excellent as that fucking movie is, I don't think would have done well at the box office. You know, no, I don't think so. And I, I know someone else who was like trying, trying to take a crack at that beforehand. And it just was like, how do you like, especially if you're being as true to the novel as Flanagan was, it's just like, you know, no one wants to go there. <laughs> but Netflix did. <laughs> and it wound up being really, really great. Flanagan is yeah. the king of taking a, a, pro- a Stephen King property that seems like a bad idea on paper and then delivering something amazing with it. Yeah, exactly. You know? And so he is, in in our opinion, is sort of ascended to the same level as like a Rob Reiner or a Frank Darabont in this, you know, galaxy of Stephen King adaptations where if his name is on it and it's a Stephen King thing, like at this point he has, he has earned my trust. 100%. Well, that's a hell of a segue you just said. Exactly. Up me, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, totally coincidental. The, I wasn't I wasn't setting up. I wasn't teeing us up for anything there. The topic at hand today is revival, which Mike Flanagan uh, very 
famously was attached to and then like right away uh said nope not happening and uh so we're talking about a title that hasn't been adapted yet so we we've done this a couple of times on the show you know we had uh Speaking of the Prometheus connection, we had an episode on The Long Walk, which also hasn't been adapted yet. We had that episode with Logan Marshall Green. We, uh, we, I I don't know. These are the episodes I really like is kind of digging into the very few adaptations that haven't happened yet. And in particular, Revival, I was so excited when you picked this because, like, for my money, this is the best Stephen King in the last, like, 20 years or so. And it, it was something that, I read upon release. I'm like, oh, wow, this is really good. And then um, revisiting it for the show. When you understand where it's going, the you see just how cleverly he's setting up everything mm-hmm. towards this finale. This this book is very famous for having, uh, at least among King nerds, for, for having like a very bleak ending. It is like existentially his like darkest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, our darkest story by, you know, a fucking green mile. Um, so it's one that I'm, I'm just super happy to talk about. And we'll, I think we'll dive in a little bit to the Flanagan side of things and uh, stuff, but, uh, but David, would you do us the honors and kind of describe the basics of the, uh, the plot for anybody who might not have read it? Yeah. Revival is about, uh, the decades long relationship between two characters, two individuals. There's a boy named Jamie Morton and a preacher named, uh, Charles Jacobs who strolls into uh, Jamie's life one day, much like Robert Meacham in Night of the Hunter, except that mm-hmm. Charles Jacobs actually is a man of God. He's not a charlatan. He's an incredibly kind and competent preacher. And he also happens to love electricity and loves doing little experiments with electricity, including uh, primitive electroshock treatments in his garage, <laughs> which he administers to Jamie's brother uh, at one point when his brother gets afflicted by a, a condition that renders him mute and it restores his powers of speech and then tragedy strikes and charles jacobs loses his faith and drifts away from jamie's life but they continue to just randomly intersect over the course of of uh jamie's history uh, over the course of their their their, right. their two lives they keep winding up crossing paths and every time jamie reconnects with reverend jacobs he is disturbed to see that you know these experiments with electricity are continuing, and and he's he's both you know disturbed but also enthralled because Reverend Jacobs seems to be onto something. He seems to be perhaps you might say cracking open a door. Uh, and one of the <laughs> things he does is in you know using this electricity, he hears Jamie of his uh, of his addiction. He's you know addicted to drugs and alcohol, as uh, as many uh, King protagonists have been in the past. And mm-hmm. Jacobs wipes that clean, and in doing so, uh, makes a you know obliged uh, Jamie's obliged to to help him with his experiments in the future, which you know, gets all personal and strange, and and things happen, and it winds up yep. yeah, indeed uh, arriving at a, a shockingly bleak place. It's a bleak place that gets bleaker. Like the the ending, it takes you to where you think it's going to go, and then it just keeps going further and further and mm-hmm. further, and then you just close the book and feel depressed. Right. We'll uh, get straight up Lovecraftian uh, towards the end. And it's, uh, it is. And when I say existentially horror, it is the, the kind that sticks with you. This isn't like, Oh man, it's really scary that, you know, that, that, uh, fucking car moved on its own or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, this isn't just kind of a traditional thrilling 
like a Cujo where it's like, Oh yeah, that dog's rabid and scary. That's a monster I see and understand. This is the, yeah, the, the way this, this whole thing wraps up, it's, it's hard to talk about getting in, yeah, without, without getting spoiling. into spoilers. Well, I do um, want to have like a, a full blown spoiler discussion about the ending at some point I in kind this of episode. Do too. Yes. Um, yeah. I don't think we should lead with that. Let's maybe build right. up to it and give it some runway right. in case people want to bail at some point. But we do absolutely need to to get into that. <laughs> um, right. Before we get there, though, why why did you pick this title? I mean, I think I know why. It's a great book, but it's, you know, can you really elaborate great- a little? Yeah, it's a great book, and it's it deals with cosmic horror, which I personally love. Yes. I really am drawn to that, and, and some of my favorite King work deals with that. The Mist being, I think, the closest, but also hmm. it obviously goes there as well. And I was going to actually ask you guys. I'm telling what you, I, man, uh, you love Dark Tower. You love it so much. <laughs> yeah, I, I was about to say, what other ones should I read that I, I haven't? I'm clearly Dark Tower. Have you read Nightmares and Dreamscapes, the short I story try, collection? I, I was looking. I was looking. I don't think I have. Okay, I was trying to recall if I had, and I, have, I don't think I've read that one. My favorite King short story is in there. It's called Crouch End, and it's very nakedly uh, Stephen King doing Lovecraft. Yeah. There's Lovecraftian names and shit in it. There's no doubt about it, and it is fucking phenomenal. Like, I, I wish he would write an entire book like this. And if you have not read that yet, I cannot advise strongly enough that you seek out the um, the audiobook version of this that has Tim Curry reading that oh, particular short story. Ooh, buddy, it's um, it's one of the best like performances of a a piece of King writing that I've ever heard. Just incredible. But yeah, you're right on those other examples. Those are it's, those are overtly Lovecraftian. And and this one obviously is too. It opens with a quote from Lovecraft, and mm-hmm. there are other inferences and references throughout that. The studied reader will appreciate because it, he's definitely drawing on Lovecraftian lore here and there, oh, especially yeah. with the grimoires. Yeah. And something about cosmic horror, because it is so related to our concepts of faith and the afterlife and our, our and our understanding of the universe, I think for me, those things hit on a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And for sure. And King King is really hitting on a deep level with this one. Like that, like really he takes it about as far as you can go and and nails it the sense of dread that you know grows over the course of this book you know is something he's done in many of his works but the sense of despair you arrive at at the end i i don't i've not read one where he where he's indulged in that to this extent you say you're a fan of cosmic horror so i assume you're a lovecraft fan yeah yeah i i'm not i've not read a ton but i've read you know color out of space and uh, a few of the short, other short stories, but I've never, I never delved too deeply into him. Fair enough. I won't continue that line of questioning then Eric, go ahead. <laughs> like, isn't that weird? Like I love, like I'm talking about all these things I love. And then you're like, well, of course you've read the granddaddy. I'm like, actually I have. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> but Lovecraft is a, he is, you know, the king of, of cosmic horror, but also like, I can imagine someone being very into cosmic horror, but not particularly like liking Lovecraft. Lovecraft has a very particular way of writing and it's very old. This, these are stories that were written decades and decades ago and, and they have all the, the hallmarks of that writing up to and including his unfortunate um, <laughs> racial beliefs. Yes. Uh, but it's a little stodgy, you know, it's, Lovecraft. It, it is. It's strange. I do love that language. I love, I, like I remember color out of space, just luxuriating in, in that language. So I have no excuse for why I haven't read more. Uh, other than that, I try to read a lot of things. Maybe I don't know. Not not patting myself on the back here. 
I remember when the first season of True Detective was running and there was like fan theories running left and right that that show, that season was eventually going to erupt into full blown cosmic horror. And I remember rarely have I ever been so excited about the possibility of a thing. Didn't end up happening. You know, it, but it, oh, it was tantalizing, wasn't it? There's that one hint at the last, you know, that when he looks up and sees space unfolding, and you're like, they were obviously thinking about that, and and of course, like I was one of many people who then went and bought the Yellow King on on Amazon immediately, oh, and same. was reading that, yeah, and just like, holy cow, this is incredible too, and and, and very excited about like the implications that contained therein, but you know, that show did what it needed to do. Yeah, I agree. It would have been, in retrospect, I don't know that I. Well, fuck, I don't know. I was going to say, I don't think I would have liked it as much, but I don't know. You know, I think the world of Fukunaga as a director, yes, indeed. you know, so, you know, maybe he could have pulled it off. Who knows? It's just not what they were going for. It, it no. seemed that way at a certain point, but not so much. Little touch of it, maybe it was 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 on his mind when he was working on that. Just a little bit. So you can't talk about revival without talking about religion and yeah. King's the theme of religion and King's work mm-hmm. it, to me, revival feels like he's been building up to this for, for years with his disdain for like organized religion. Right. Yes. And, and people who are dogmatic throughout most of his stuff. If there's a religious person and in his story, they are an overly religious person that turns out to be like the villain of the piece, the Precisely. Mrs. Carmody from, from the mist and, you know, or even, um, uh, even in Salem's Lot, you know, the preacher in Salem's Lot, Father Callahan is is not, you know, he he's a weak character. Like his his beliefs don't stand up to the monster when when he needs it to. Carrie White, you know, her mo- mother is another example, Margaret White. Yeah. You know, so like this has been something throughout his career. And this something that I really love about Revival is that Charlie Jacobs isn't wrong throughout almost all of his, his stuff. His point of view is actually the one I agree with the most through most of the story. He, like you said, he's a very nice guy. He's a very kind and humble person, you know, and then his, his wife and child are taken from him. And when that happens, it not only causes him to question faith, it leads up to a big scene called the terrible sermon and yes. where he, he goes and it's a Thanksgiving uh, sermon, I think. And he addresses this small town, the, his first appearance after losing his family. And it's, you know, everybody of course knows. And, and uh, he essentially has a screed against this is proof that there is no God reading that whole section. You go like as somebody I'm, I'm agnostic. So it's, you know, as somebody who kind of goes, I don't, you know, I don't know if there's something out there, you know, it's not what everybody thinks it is. Clearly I feel for him. Like I feel for, for Jacobs. And like, by the time he pushes things too far, he is doing it for, you know, kind of a, a reason I can, you know, understand his whole journey is so he can find out if there is an afterlife, right? Yes. Cause he's, he doesn't believe that there is, is one, or he doesn't believe there's a God, but there's part of him that wants to know if his wife and, and small child you know, still exist. Yeah. They persist somewhere. Exactly. So it is, it has got, you know, a very strong anti-organized religion bent and it is again very cynical, and so it's it's something that I really I don't know if King's talked a whole lot about this, like uh, you know publicly about this book in particular. But I you know I, I would love to kind of get his his thoughts on why this always pops up. Like, what do you guys think? Is there you think he's working through stuff? Do you think he this is just ends up being good fodder for 
for great characters, you know, the, the kind of questioning belief kind of thing. Like what, what, why do you think he's drawn to this all the time? I think he's planted a stake in the ground, especially pretty early on with Carrie, that he doesn't subscribe to the ways in which religion can affect an individual or a community. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's so much a condemnation of religion itself as the way in which the group think or the fervor can corrupt one person or many. And that's something mm-hmm. that, he, that, as you pointed out, has been pretty consistent in his work. And I'm curious now, has he ever done something that presents religion in a positive light on a personal level, perhaps? I can't think of anybody. If anyone could, it'd be you guys. You could maybe make the argument for Father Callahan in yeah. Salem's Lot and then, you yeah. know. Well, I have another. Spoilers. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm stopping <laughs> myself from uh, getting in a dark tower spoiler territory there. Uh, in general, you're right. I think that what King is usually doing there is using convenient villains. And what better a convenient villain than someone whose own, you know, passion for a thing or their their entire faith system is a, a perversion of what they are supposed to believe in the first place, you know, taking it to these insane lengths. And I think that in in those sort of characters, these fundamentalists, those are very relatable villains. Like in real life, we understand those, but we know those people, you know, they're all over the goddamn place, apparently, mm-hmm. you know, and so they make for universally recognizable villains, I would say. And they're fucking terrifying. There's, there's <laughs> a, a religious fundamentalist is infinitely more scary to me than, say, a monster in a closet. It's a and if real they're a thing. ghost, it's even scarier. I'm looking at you, Poltergeist, too. <laughs> and and they're, they're infuriating. The righteousness is infuriating. So it's yes. very easy, especially in a film like The Mist, for you to really get riled up and root against this person. They're very mm-hmm. enjoyable villains. Yeah. You'll want to see them get their comeuppance. Yes. You know? So, but I, I don't think that King has a, I don't think he has a problem with I don't know. I go back and forth on this, but with I faith, with faith. He doesn't have a problem with faith. Yes, not at all. And I was reading an interview with him the other day while doing research or some other thing. And he was talking about how he believed in God. And I was mm-hmm. kind of shocked to be reading this because I always kind of assumed that he was like Eric and I agnostic. And it didn't seem like that was the case. And that's when it that's when this opinion sort of hit me, you know, right. that I just gave before I read that. I think I would have. um I hadn't whatever it was that he said that I read uh, was was pretty explicit. He believes in in God and he has his own faith. But if if that's the case, then the recurrence of these characters throughout his work is is clearly playing at something else. And it must be that yeah, so, a, a rejection of the institutionalization. of faith. Yes. Right. Yes, totally. You know, yeah. And I think uh, I think one of his kids is a is a minister, if I'm that's not mistaken. True. One of his daughters. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, it that I mean, it's all fascinating. Like that that whole angle on this is, is interesting. And I also really love just from a writing perspective, you know, I, I, not to keep harking back on uh, Dark Tower, but like, you know, I, I've made mention before of revisiting Wizard and Glass, which is the fourth book. It's it's a uh, kind of a flashback book and just being awed by his writing in that book. And I had the same experience when revisiting revival of like, once you know where it's going, you really, you see how clearly he's setting up everything. And what I love about it is there's this kind of whole angle to this book about destiny. And if these two characters are kind of destined to, you know, be in each other's lives at key moments, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is 
another fascinating angle because one of the ultimate truths of the book is that, you know, everything's fucked and nobody's controlling anything, you know, and nobody that you want to be controlling things, you know, the, the people, yeah. the thing with the power, isn't the thing you want, isn't the th- being you want with the power. Right. And so there's this whole subtext of this book is how everything's kind of chaos. And then it's also strongly hinting at, you know, these two characters being entwined together. And, uh, so the the way the the book is structured is that after you know the, the I think Jamie is like six or six to nine or something in the time he knows mm-hmm. Jacobs and then Jacobs leaves his life and then doesn't come back into his life again you know until he's strung out on on heroin and as an, a full on adult and uh, um but in that time we stick with Jamie throughout his story as he's like hitting puberty, his first girlfriend, you know, the first time, you know, the time he loses his virginity, the time he discovers, you know, he's a good guitarist and he just can, he's the kind of person that can pick up a guitar and then within 10 minutes, pluck out whatever he's hearing on the radio. And just how, when you realize how much electricity is a, pardon the, uh, uh, the pun, a current, you know, through the, uh, the whole, the whole story, like you realize that even when Jacobs isn't in his life, electricity is marking all of his big moments is his personal growth moments and beyond just like, Oh, he's in a house with electricity, but no, it's, it's the discovering what a guitar sounds like through an amp is, is is like a life changing moment. His first gig when he does that and realizes that's his calling is to be a musician. When he loses his virginity, it's during a thunderstorm. You know, it's like all these things are so cleverly set up that, you know, I don't know if, King gets the credit in his later work when he like knocks it out of the park like this. And then not in the same way that he does, you know, with people that have like can reread the stand after 40 years or whatever, yes. you know, it's, I often like to, you know, when I finish a book, I'll go back and just read the first couple pages again, just to see where I, where we came from. And when you read the first couple pages of this novel, after you reach that ending, it's just like, it's crushing <laughs> because it sets yeah. up that idea of, is it fate or coincidence? Are the, the events of our lives, you know, part of a cosmic plan or are they just random accidents and from the perspective of this book you know he expresses that in the first page like that he dearly hopes that it's all accidental because if it isn't that means that all of these things are in support of the most terrible fate imaginable to, to anyone and and once you've read once you've read the end of the book and then you go back to the beginning you're just like you just you just hang your head low like charlie brown like oh man <laughs> shuffle, <laughs> shuffle away sadly <laughs> Any toys with that that fate versus coincidence thing that you're talking about? He he plays with in a really interesting way in this book. And I was telling Eric this yesterday, or I probably and I probably told it to him before. But one of my favorite things about Revival is that the main character is not the main character that many other people would have gone with with this particular story. If most people came up with this, the entire concept of this story, right? they would be focused on Jacobs throughout the entire novel. And Jamie is sort of like they wander in and out of each other's lives. It's almost like a double helix that's going on as you're reading this book. They, they drift apart, they come together, they drift apart, they come together. You know, that happens like multiple times. And Jamie sort of becomes this Igor character to Charles Jacobs's Victor Frankenstein. Exactly. That becomes more explicit as the novel goes on. But there's there's some fault to this theory because Mary Shelley's Frankenstein does not feature Igor as a character, right? I looked into this, and it was, and it e- was all e- yeah, it was in the, it was it wasn't until the Universal film. Well, it he first appeared as a character in the first stage production of of ah. Frankenstein. 
I learned. And then that was adopted for the movies. And then Igor sort of became an iconic character in his own right and appeared in a number of like universal monster movies in various forms and sometimes under different names even. You know, Jamie is that assistant character to the mad scientist. And to focus on him versus focusing entirely on Jacobs, I think, is one of the most interesting things about this. And what it does is when you're reading the novel, this thing is 400 fucking pages, right? So the first 300 pages, you're reading it and you're like, where is this going? What exactly is happening here? And it doesn't really start locking into the into place until that last 100 pages. Yeah. And then it really takes off. And you're like, oh, this is the she's alive sequence, essentially. You know, um, this is a brilliant move on his part. I think that the average reader, and I'm not trying to be insulting to the average reader, but like someone who might come to King completely unawares and read this book would be like, it's 300 pages of like a junkie who plays guitar and he travels around as a carny. And then at the end, you know, this amazing thing happens, you know, but why did it have to be 300 pages long? I went and pulled up some reviews of this book when it came out and found more than one of them that were essentially saying that, that, that it spun its wheels too much. No, the ending would not have the power that it does were it not for that amount of setup. And go ahead. It's absolutely true. And there's one other thing. When I was reading it the first time, we're about to start crossing over into spoilers, but not completely. But when he he goes back to Weathertop, that's the name of it, right? Mm-hmm. And he first is, you know, assists in the curing of his high school sweetheart, Astrid, and then comes back again for this final experiment with a, a new character, a woman named Mary Faye, who we've never met before. And my initial thought when I was reading it was like, shouldn't that have been combined? Shouldn't he be, shouldn't Astrid be the, the final experiment? But then you get to, then you get to the ending and realize he knew exactly what he was doing because the ending that we think is the ending isn't actually the ending. And it all mm-hmm. pays off so brilliantly. And that's one of those things where you're like, again, like me reading it with an idea of narrative structure in my mind, I'm like, I'm like, something's amiss here. And then you just <laughs> patiently wait you keep reading and you realize that it was there was a master plan all along and it is it is terrible treat. It's funny mm. you should mention that because Flanagan's script does something sort of along those lines. Astrid comes into it again at the end. Mm-hmm. She's not the per- she's not the lady on the slab at the very end. Yeah. But what what he's done in in his version, which I would argue streamlines the book in a very effective way that turns it into a movie. He's reworked it. You know, so it's not it, it's not a direct one for one for what he's done here. But I think it works better for a movie. And that's this. Like uh, there's a character in the book named Kathy Morse um, yeah. mm-hmm. who who sits for one of the uh, portraits in lightning that, that yep. Charles Jacobs does. Right. And then, you know, during um, Jamie's research later, he finds out she later like wanders into a jewelry store and smashes all the cases or something. And it's one of those indications that the people that are sitting for Charles's treatments are are coming out the other side really fucked up. Right. So what he does is he transforms the Kathy Morse character into a ringer who actually works for Charles in this traveling show that he's doing. So she's the one who always gets up and gets her portrait taken. And there's a sequence in his screenplay where she sits for a portrait. Something goes horribly awry and she self mutilates on stage at, at this, at this show. She gouges out her own eyes. She carves her mouth into this huge, like rictus grin. She's stabbing herself. She's, 
you know, this goes on for minutes. It's fucking nightmarishly <laughs> described in yeah. the, uh, in the script. Mm. And but she survives the thing. And in the end, she's the woman that shows up as the woman on the slab. She's dead and they're bringing her back to life. And I thought that was a really effective way to sort of you know, you get that character mid movie. You also get the huge horror moment in the center of the thing that doesn't exist yeah. in the book where with that self mutilation scene. And then you're also getting a personal connection to that character, which we might not have had to Mary Fay in the book by having her be the sort of um, herald mm. of the information yes. that, that Jamie acquires at the end of the, at the end of the story. That's really interesting. I'm not, I certainly, you know, have thought about how I would adapt this. And that, that is one thing I thought of, which is that you just need to introduce Mary Fay or the Mary Fay equivalent earlier. So you mm. do have that connection, but, but definitely having, you know, Astrid be the precursor to that. So you right. have that, that heartbreaking moment that then occurs later on. Right. And in Flanagan's script as well, he also makes um, Astrid, he ties Astrid into uh, Jacobs's um, initial appearance in the town where he's she's real close friends with jamie instead of you know in the book you know he, she doesn't really kind of show up until jacobs is out of the picture yeah. and then jamie just meets us you know pretty girl in school um but here it's like they're they're like childhood besties essentially and uh, so she's kind of a witness to a lot of the the good Jacobs, you know, at the beginning, totally. yeah, which may, which then makes it less of a coincidence, <clears throat> I guess, whenever she reaches out, you know, to Jacobs later when he's a faith healer, kind of known as a faith healer and she's sick. Um, or it's like, cause then she has that personal connection. She knew, she knew the Reverend, you know, back in the day. So exactly. Those are the choices. Um, so like when, you, when you need, when you've got 400 pages, you'll get the right resonance regardless. But when you've got two hours of tell a movie, you like, you need to make those like connections earlier and, and a little right. more profound. And, and that sounds like a great one. There's another major change that uh, Flanagan makes, but before we get to it, I think that we should have our discussion about the ending and hmm. what exactly this builds up to. And then, you know, then we'll, we'll tell you how this other version played out. But David, we, would you be willing to describe the events after say, uh, Jamie shows up at Charles house toward the end? Yeah. So, he 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 comes back. Charles has made him promise that he comes that he come back and, and give him some some time assisting him one last time. He's like just, and I think I think uh, Jamie's like I, I'll give you two weeks, and Charles says that's more than enough. And so he goes back to to Weathertop where he and Astrid had consummated the relationship years earlier. And Charles has this this woman named Mary Fay who has died of cancer, if I'm not mistaken. Sounds right. Yeah. Astrid had cancer too, but maybe, maybe there was a different, either way, he, he has her whole life story that he recounts. So we do get to know her leading up to the moment of uh, her death, which Jamie thought he was going to be assisting in another cure, which he has seen, you know, he's seen Astrid be cured. He's seen other people be cured, but this is a woman who has, uh, as Charles Jacobs points out, she's been dead now for 15 minutes at the time that Jamie first sees her. And his intention is to bring her back as per Lazarus, as per Dr. Frankenstein. He wants mm. to revive Mary Fay, not to bring her back to life, but just to get information from her. He wants to hear she, from he her. He wants to interrogate her. He wants yeah. to interrogate her and ask her, what is on the other side? Are my wife and child there? What is What, what exists beyond our earthly realm? Yeah, I'm getting chills just 
thinking about this shit. But go <laughs> and on. He, and he needs Jamie to do it because Jamie is the key because of his own encounters with that electricity years earlier. He needs him to be the conduit. So he's arranged this entire experiment in accordance with the weather patterns in that part of the country. And he knows there's going to be a thunderstorm. He's been waiting for this one particular, uh, you know, cloud formation to let Mary Faye die to take her off of her ventilator so that she passes away just as the storm is forming. And he knows that the lightning will strike the, you know, this is the place that is famous for its being conductive of, uh, of electricity. You know, the, the, the big weather pole that lightning strikes that we've been, we've seen earlier in the novel. And he's basically going to do a, 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 a Victor Frankenstein experiment here. Uh, using the powers of nature to unlock the secrets of the universe. Mm-hmm. So sure enough, the storm forms, lightning strikes, you know, the shit hits the fan and Mary Fay opens her eyes and reveals herself to be not Mary Fay at all. But I would describe, you know, there's, there's lots of discussions about doorways and she essentially becomes that doorway and the entire world for a moment melts away revealing exactly what awaits all of us beyond uh beyond once we pass the threshold of our own lives and it's what awaits us on the other side (laughs) uh you know it's almost like (laughs) if you describe it it's sort of like i kind of want to just read the passage aloud but i don't have the book open in front of me we basically find ourselves in a hellscape uh in service (laughs) of a demonic species of entities presided over by a monstrous being referred to as mother uh, because there's no other way to describe her. And I think, you know, the image that instantly came to mind when I read this was phantasm. And I know King right. is a fan of phantasm, but that description of a long procession of Slaves. souls in this wasteland yeah. who are enslaved by this, these, these monstrous beings, which don't exist in phantasm, of course, but just that was the image that came to mind. So I just like took phantasm and then, added in the image of these ant creatures that are guiding us along towards our 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 doom and driving them across this endless plain wasteland yeah and it sounds like describing it out of context like that that's one of the the the, the challenges it's hard to describe it without it sounding almost silly yes like, yeah, it's like giant ants are uh, marching us across this landscape but when you read it it gets you on a gut level and then the transformation of mary into mother is Mm -hmm. is really monstrous it sounds as if mike flanagan sort of hints at it earlier on when uh jacob's assistant carves her mouth open but yeah her mouth distends into something that is i think he describes it as sort of like a jellyfish with a a a insulting sketch of a human face on it whose mouth then grows into uh, this infinite void. And another image that came to mind in that moment, oddly, was from Tales from the Crypt's Demon Knight film, when this child at the end, his <laughs> head sort of explodes yeah. and it extends on his head and his neck and his mouth opens up into this horrible maw. And something mm-hmm. about the deformation of mouths is always terrifying. Yeah. It's always scary. Sure. It's why in that deleted scene from, you know, the, or not deleted, but the extended cut of Return of the King, when Bruce Spence plays the mouth of Sauron, like it's just, they made his mouth bigger and it just makes you feel creepy, like scared. And King <laughs> right. describes that in such a guttural and terrifying way in the sequence. Uh, and out of that mouth then comes 
exactly what Charles Jacobs has been looking for this entire time. Proof that his wife and child still exist in some shape, way, or form. And the shape, way, or form that they exist in is very Lovecraftian, very much, you know, it reminds me of something you would have seen in in, in The Thing. I, I don't know how to describe mm-hmm. it. You just have to read it. But it's it's horrible. Right. I think and, he describes it as like a, a spider's leg, or not spider's leg, like a, an ant leg kind of coming out of her mouth, but the tip of it like morphs into the faces of of his his young wife and, you know, like two-year-old, you know, child. And they are just in agony and, and eternal suffering kind of thing. And that is something that's awaiting us all. I that keep, there, the, yeah. the, the, there is no heaven. There is no hell. There's just this. I, this is – and so – uh, you, one of the big things about the ending is that like Jamie is re- recounting all this, like in kind of a diary form and in is essentially ends the whole story going, just hoping, hoping that this thing was lying, that there, that this isn't it, you know, cause this thing was just like, you're all, you, you mentioned phantasm, this kind of the tall man, you, you know, he has this whole thing in, in phantasm where he's like, he's like, you know, you don't go to heaven, you know, you come to us. And, and that's kind of what this is. And, and it is so existentially fucked up and you can be, you know, mother Teresa, or you could be Adolf Hitler. It's not going to matter. You're, you're all, you're going to end up in this, in this, uh, uh, you know, kind of slavery, this torture slavery. Exactly. I was, you know, after I finished reading the script, I was sort of ranting and raving about it to my wife and she has not read revival so i kept sort of obliquely referring to the ending this and the ending that she was like well how does it end i was like all right so here's what happens i explain the whole thing and then i get to the part and i kind of did what you did just now david and you didn't say the thing about the ants until you were like halfway through that description (laughs) and it's because like saying the thing about the ants makes it sound silly you know it doesn't sound scary when it's like and then you go to a parallel dimension and there's ants and they're driving. You'd be like, what? Fucking ants. But you are exactly right. Like in context, it is nightmarish what he's describing. You know, I was like, and then the ants, they're like driving you across this, this, you know, imagine an endless plane with like a, a bombed out city kind of halfway submerged into it. And then at one far end, there's just this huge being, this love crafty and being called mother and it's bad. And my wife was just like, well, what are they doing to the souls? And I'm like, well, they're driving them across this plane and torturing. Them. <laughs> she was like, for what? And I was like, I don't know. Like, that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing about cosmic horror. It's like, it's madness. Yeah. It, it, it should not make sense to us. These are insane gods that he's talking about, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, some sort of insane higher power or intelligence that is working well beyond our definition of reality. And that's what's frightening about it. I don't know what their fucking purpose is. I don't know why they're driving them across that field, you know, but they're doing it and they're apparently doing a really good job because they've been at it for a long time. And then that's not even the worst part of the ending. If you agree oh, with yes. me, I don't know. Yes. But, the, but that's like, that's the prelude to the really terrible part, which is on a much more human level, a much more uh, quotidian level. All of the people who have been affected by Reverend Jacob's electricity begin to do terrible things to one another or to themselves. And Mm -hmm. it begins with Astrid slitting her wife's throat when she comes home to her after having participated in the revival of Mary Fay. And then it just, it's a chain reaction and it just goes on and on and on. 
and enters uh, Jamie's own orbit when his brother, who was one of the very first patients Jacob's ever had, uh, winds up in a mental institution himself. And Jamie himself has shown signs of this, you know, throughout his, throughout the book, you know, he's has these dreams, he has these, you know, these visions and he finds himself waking up just, you know, clawing at his own arms, but it's never been that bad. And he's just, he's left hoping not only that, you know, that his brother will survive and that he'll survive, but again, that, that, that was just a vision and that this is all just a coincidence right. and that <laughs> right. everything that seems at this point pretty clearly fated to happen will not in fact happen. And he leaves us and King leaves us with, you know, that tiny fragment of hope. But more than that, just the crushing sense that fate is not going to deal us a happy hand. Yeah, yeah. The, like, and, and Eric touched on this a minute ago, too. But, like, there's, like, a shred of, you know, maybe this thing that came through this dead body was lying. But the evidence is stacked against it. By the yeah. end of the book, you're pretty sure that thing was telling the fucking truth. So what you're left with is this completely shattered man who is now living out the rest of his life knowing that this is what's waiting for him. And that's it. The end. Like this, this yeah. book stuck with me for months. Like historically, I have never been a person who fears death. You know, I, I'm just like, well, you know, it's, it's a part of life. It's going to happen. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And, and frankly, I'm kind of curious to find out what happens. So I'm not exactly <laughs> scared of it. After reading this book, I remember specifically staying awake at night, like lying in bed and just staring at the ceiling and being like, holy fuck, dude. Like, we really don't know. <laughs> like, it could be fucking <laughs> anything. What if it is giant ants? I don't want to fucking be around giant ants, dude. They sound like assholes. There's one other work of art, a film that has kind of like left me with that same feeling of despair and in a different way, but a similar feeling. And that's Martyrs. Oh, mm. yes. Go ahead. Tell them how Martyrs ends. <laughs> Martyrs ends with sort of the flip side, which is just that there's nothing. Yeah. And that all of this pain that we go through in our lives, all of the everything that we go through is towards, you know, a, a, a conclusion that is just absolutely nothing. And the weird thing about it is that as someone who is agnostic and leans towards atheism, that's not too far away from what I believe. Like, I don't right. really believe that there's probably anything after we die. I think we just, we cease to be. But the way in which martyrs calcifies the hope that there's something else and then pulls that hope away in the most terrible way possible uh, <laughs> really left me shook and in a way that I hadn't anticipated. And revival is the one you know, other work that has come close to leaving me with that feeling of dread for something that on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm not too worried about. I'm not afraid of death. I'm concerned with it. I think about it a lot, as we all do on an existential level. I'm not afraid of it. But right. martyrs and revival are the two things that actually made me a little fearful. And <laughs> and that's a sign of that's a sign of a good storyteller. And I, I wouldn't recommend martyrs to most people, but I would no. with a devilish grin hand a copy of Revival to people and be like, yeah, check this out. <laughs> Something that I think is particularly brilliant about the way that King structures this whole thing. And again, this is why it benefits a reread after you finished it and you know where it's going uh, is you realize that he's telling you a story of life, like ups and downs. It is this kid's life. You know, it's the joys of, you know, discovering his talent. It is him falling in love, him falling out of love, him hitting the bottom of the barrel, him rebounding and having, you know, a, a living a life that that he's content with. And then towards the end, like he meets his uh, 
was it niece, right? Is a niece, niece or nephew? I don't remember. <clears throat> he was like oh, a toddler party, who's just, yeah. yeah, it's just, you know, adores him. Like he'd been kind of estranged from his family. And so he like reconnects, meets this baby who just instantly falls in love with him and like, you know, adores him. He adores, adores the kid. And then that like goes right into everybody that you have loved and you love and hate and everything in between. We're all destined for this. So this, this gorgeous, beautiful young life that you, you know, that, that, that you've uh, interacted with here, they're going to be in that line too, eventually. Right. It is such a great way to kind of ground this whole concept of your life is your life. And then, you know, enjoy your time here because maybe this is the best you're going to get. And uh, not a maybe by the end of this, but you know what I mean? David, if you knew unequivocally that that's what was awaiting us after death, would it change the way you live your life now? Ooh, that's an excellent question. I don't know. I, I remember reading the book and thinking about like, would I just kill myself? And you, you can't, you can't escape it because then you right. get there sooner. Right. And might make you a health freak, if anything. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think you'd pursue longevity over anything else <laughs> or you would, or you would dedicate yourself to metaphysics and try to find a way to like open a second <laughs> portal to a better Conclusion. To kill your own soul. Yeah. I, it's, it's definitely like that's that's what's truly horrifying about it is that there's just no sense of escape. Like when you right. think about it in terms of like atheism, like on some levels, there's like a coldness to the idea that we just die and that's the end of it. And and that terrifies mm-hmm. people. But also there's comfort in just being like, well, I'm not going to be around to, to be aware of that. Like my awareness will cease right. and it won't matter. And and that that degree of oblivion well, I think it is terrifying to a great many people to me is, is very binary. And it's just like, it's an on and off switch and I won't, you know, I won't be conscious. So it doesn't matter. Just as you weren't conscious, you know, before your birth. Precisely. Exactly. You know? and, right. and, and so to, to, to yeah. all of a sudden have proof, not only of an afterlife, but of a terrible one, I can only imagine that, that would just, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that I would just like live my life seeking out whatever joy I could, but I don't know if I can, if I, if I could, mm, everything right. would have a real that yeah. yeah. You'd have a sour, no, a sour taste, everything in your mouth. Yeah. You'd have to do exactly what uh, Jamie does and try to give yourself hope. And even though, you know, damn well reading that, that he doesn't believe that mother was lying, you know, he, you, you have to say that or else, you know, you're just going to be insane. There, there is nothing else. Yeah. You will be obsessed with that, that thought of, of where you're each beat of your heart, each passing second is bringing you closer to that ultimate fate. Yeah, no, this, this book's fucked up. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, I, I really, I really think that, that this is, this is a great like sister book to Pet Cemetery in that both are just so fucking dark and nihilistic and devoid of hope. You yes. know, they are. Yeah, I love it when King just like fucking sheds all that stuff because, you know, one of the things I love about Stephen King is his giant beating heart. He's an empathy man. He feels for people and he cares about his characters and you feel that. And you can tell that all that's here, but then how can you be, you know, a just God as a writer, you know, and uh, fucking leave poor Jamie Morton with that knowledge? You know, it's like that that is a very cruel act for King. And uh, and I, I got to say, I love it. I love reading it. It's, I love it when he, he goes full mean. It's so interesting because I, I'm the same way. I, I can't hate my characters. I hate doing terrible things to them when I'm making a film. And, I, and maybe that's one of the reasons why I haven't done a horror film yet, because generally you have to be crueler in a way but um 
I really am drawn to these types of stories. And I love having that rug pulled out from under me. And I love the brutality of it. I, I love being left with that feeling. And, you know, I would have loved to see Mike Flanagan adapt this film. And I would, I would love to see someone adapt it. But I've also thought about adapting myself. And at the same time, I, I wonder, like, could I go there? And I think I could. I think using the book as a template, I could. But it definitely, like, it's tough. It would be tough to go there. Who well, do you see in your cast? If you were to cast this, who 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 would you see in your mind's eye? Because it's it's been hard for me to shake Michael Shannon as Jacobs, but I don't mm-hmm. know how you do the young the young version. Jack Quaid looks just like him. Oh, that's a yeah. That's He's on a the good, boys. He would he could yeah. do it. I honestly i I was thinking I'd go full movie star and have Brad Pitt do it. Really? Wow. Yeah, I think I just love Brad. Pitt personally as an actor, but I also think he's like at that weird age, maybe he's crossed over now where he can do like a little bit young and a little bit old and you can just do a little mm-hmm. bit of a Benjamin buttoning, buttoning on him uh, if you need to, You're right. but he's, he's still, yeah, just go grab those ILM directions. files. And I love, I love, I love when, you know, you know, when he's like playing a, a character like the dad in tree of life, someone who's like truly empathetic and who you really, um, and he's got that sort of like down home quality to him. That's sort of like, He's got the good looks, but he's also just, he's just a dad. I can imagine him playing this part. And he's not, he's not, you know, I love Michael Shannon too, but Michael Shannon instantly pushes it into the weirder fire and brimstone preacher. Whereas I think Brad Pitt could definitely play like just the quaint local reverend who everyone loves and then takes it into this other direction. But I can't imagine him in late stage Charlie Jacobs mode where he is full on insane Victor Frankenstein. Well, that's where I would... 12 Monkeys, man. True. Uh, I also I, I also have to say, if I made if I adapted this, I would probably change something that would probably be controversial. Like what? Ooh, what? I wouldn't have Jacobs lose his faith. Mm. And... How? How are you... How, how would you manage that? I've been thinking about it. Because at first I was like, I, would I take out the terrible sermon or would I just have the terrible sermon be like a pit stop on his journey to regaining his faith? And here's, here's my, my reason. I think this works. I think the book works great. And I wouldn't, you know, I, it's, this isn't like I'm trying to poke holes in the book, but in thinking about the film, I was like thinking about how, here's what it is. The cynicism of the book to me would be harder to carry over into a film if it is running through the entire film and jacobs is an intensely cynical character from the moment of the great tragedy uh, that befalls him and i was thinking about how it might be more profound at the end if we think as an audience that we are going to be given a binary choice between something and nothing you know in the book he wants proof maybe that his wife and child are okay somewhere he wants to you know when he does the terrible sermon he even alludes to the idea that there there might be something out there it's not christianity and it's not these other faiths but there might be something and so he's dedicating his life to to to, like to science and to um and to mystery and to the idea that there is something else but he's rejected christianity he's rejected christ he's rejected god and i just wondered if he were to maintain his belief in the afterlife, in the Christian afterlife, and his belief that his wife and child are in heaven. And he just wants proof of that. Like he wants to find proof 
that they are with God and with Christ and, and that everything he's believed is But you said earlier true. he forsakes Christianity. You're saying in this version that despite what happens, he does not forsake Christianity. Yes, that's what I would do. I, I mean, he wouldn't forsake Christianity. I would have, but he would still devote himself to science and all these. He would, he would still devote himself to science. And I think that there's room for that. And I love the idea that in his pursuit of this, he becomes a monster in spite of himself. You'd keep everything the same. But the other thing that I think would be really interesting about this is when Jamie sees the terrible sermon, I think that plants the seed for his own atheism. He becomes sort of an agnostic yeah. non-believer. And I, and love I think the, he also makes mention that a good deal of the audience too. Yes. Like he, he thinks that because the church shuddered after that attendance dropped. I wonder if Jacobs, in addition to curing him of his addiction, tries to, forgive the pun, but revive Jamie's faith and actually succeeds in doing so. And they arrive there at the end, both believing that they are going to witness the glory of salvation, so to speak, and are presented with this other reality instead if that twist would dig that knife in deeper on film. Hmm. That's an interesting take. And I'm not just saying that. Like, if, it, if I didn't like it, I would be like, no, I don't like that. It, it, um, it, it changes a certain tenet of the book. But it, yeah, it, it's it's more abstract. It's more complex. It's, it's you know, it's the, the novel's frankly, very black and white in my mind. It all but guarantees that this is what's happening. I, li- I, I like that he loses his faith. So I'd, I'd be curious to see what the version would be like where he didn't. Part of it is I that can't, when I read... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was gonna. I was just going to say, I can't imagine what that is, but I'm not fucking David Lowry. I can't write this. When, I, <laughs> you know? when I read the terrible sermon, I agree with it too much, you know? And I'm like, I get it. Like, like Eric, you said that earlier. Like, as an agnostic, you read that and you're like, that pretty much adds up. And Yeah, that nails it. Yeah. That nails it, <laughs> exactly. And on a personal level, I would, not just as a challenge as a storyteller, but for me, I would want to try to convince myself that that isn't the end. Because at that, from that point forward, there's a bleakness already there. And I would want to try to revive some, I keep using the word revive, uh, partially on purpose. I would want to revive some sense of hope before tearing that hope away. You know, they're both atheists, they both are non-believers. You're already like saying, right. okay, well, this doesn't exist, but maybe there's something else. But if you if you build up this sense of hope that maybe because I think you know as an agnostic atheist individual, I do still hope that maybe there will be something out there. I don't believe that there is. I have no faith in it. But I hope that there is, and I want to. Yeah, I want to. It should be nice. Play yeah. upon that hope. I want to play upon that hope, and then yank it away in the most brutal way possible. Hmm. hmm. I see that. And it's also more of a direct line from preacher to revival tent preacher, right? Because the way it is in the book, he becomes kind of this like fucking carnival sideshow guy with his electricity for a huge chunk. And then he resurfaces later as, as a faith healer. But there is something about that cynicism though. You'd be just because especially those, you know, revival tent fire and brimstone, you know, I'm going to pull a, a sheep's bladder out of my pocket and pretend yes. I just cured this guy's cancer or whatever thing that is so deeply cynical in real life. Like those people, mm-hmm. you know, they, they prey on, on uh, people's fears and hopes and, and uh, you know, all for money, which is exactly what he's doing because he's needing to fund his research. But he, the fact that he doesn't believe in any of that stuff so nakedly, and we know it is part of the, charm of that whole section for me so i'd be very curious to see how that would play if 
if you're putting turning that on its head and this is something he actively believes in because he does believe in the cures himself like i don't disbelieve him when he's saying that he keeps all these records and that he's uh you, he, there's a 25 percent you know side effect rate and he's like if i was to you know to be a brain surgeon i think is the way he puts it to jamie and i said you know i can cure this terminal thing that you have uh but there's a 25 percent chance that you'll have long lasting side effects or may die on the table would you do it you know you have a 75 percent chance of of being forever cured and, and live of whatever ails you, you know, it, it, is that so wrong? You know, so he doesn't believe the downsides of these side effects are all that it's, important in the, it's the really funny. Like I, I just re- rereading it the other night and I was like, this sounds an awful lot when he's talking about the side effect, it sounds an awful lot like what the CDC is saying about a uh, breakthrough <laughs> <cases> right now. <laughs> <All right. laughs> it's like the chances, fun. the chances of Delta affecting you are pretty slim. So it's worth getting the vaccine. It's funny that you yeah. bring up this, whole alternate play in terms of the Charlie Jacobs character with, you know, faith and whatever, because as, as you've continued talking about it, I'm realizing that it shares something with the ending of Flanagan's script, which also makes a major change to the very end of the movie that, um, well, I don't, I don't personally want to interrogate it too much because I, I, we're hoping to get him on the show at one point and just do a whole yeah. episode where, you know, uh, I can really shotgun questions at him about this particular choice. But I'm curious what you think of this, and especially in light of what you just said. What he does is, in the end, when the lightning strikes and hits Mary Fay in this version, Kathy Morse, we do not see the null, which is the name of the, the afterlife. We only hear this grotesquely deformed corpse talking about it. And in doing that, I think that it makes a drastic change from the novel because King shows it to us very explicitly. And by withholding that image and shows it to Jamie, too, that that's that's yes. Jamie sees it. He doesn't. Just yes. Hear it. Yeah. Yes. Well, us, Jamie, he's, you know, yes. Right. But in doing so, like I was talking to I was talking to Eric about this after we both read it, like by by withholding that visual from the audience. It does leave, I think, more of a question open as to whether or not the thing on the table is lying. There's less proof for us to go on. If you show an audience that, they're going to say, well, we saw it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, um, this is a different approach. It's not as cut and dried as as King's version. I'm I'm curious to hear what you make of that. What sort of a difference do you think it makes for for us not to see the null? And do you find that more hopeful or, or less or what? I don't think I find it more hopeful necessarily, but I do find that it does the classic inception trick, which is, you know, you, you can debate that ending a little bit more thoroughly. Like, was that real? Was that not? Was it, is it a dream? Is it a vision? Is it, sure. is it just a, is it just something that a reanimated corpse happens to be saying? <laughs> but um, isn't the, but isn't the, the fact that you can question that more hopeful than the book? Definitely. It, it's definitely more hopeful, but you no, know, hope's not the right word because it's more up in the air. It's more up in the air. It's more um, open to interpretation. And it it leaves you room to maybe find room for hope. But it also, in a way, by not being as concrete, which is something I have thought about. You know, it's like if you were to adapt this, being as literal in the depiction of that null as King is in his writing would probably not be a good idea on film because then you were just saying, here's what it is. 
uh, take it or leave it. And right. my interpretation when I read that is probably different than yours. You know, even though he's being very descriptive, there's still so much room for subjectivity. And film, when you depict something, it instantly becomes you know, the objective reality of of, hmm, of totally. a filmmaker and, and totally. giving that to the audience. And so you have to maintain some degree of mystery and not show everything. And I think what it sounds like Flanagan did was brilliant, which is like, I mean, if it is as scary reading it, and maybe one day we'll see it as is you guys describing it to me, I think that's a brilliant decision. Well, and uh, he goes far enough to where uh, he visualizes the the faces of Jacobs's wife and and kid, but he does so via electricity, which is an interesting thing. He definitely makes the electricity stuff way more visual mm-hmm. uh, too, where it's not, because in the book, it's like, you know, he puts a fucking metal rod against your temple or the two rings that he has. Um, but here, like he actually visualizes like a little uh, St. Elmo's fire that happens and passes physically into the people that he's, he's healing. You're telling me he goes um, full gremlins too. Full gremlins. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. So the secret electricity, I think it's just a way to really cement, cement the idea that once that this isn't just something you feel that this is something that like a power that's moving into you. Right. And uh, so the electricity transfers visually into the people, which comes into play later because that's why Jamie's so important to the, uh, the experiment at the end. Cause he needs somebody who's been touched by that electricity to help him. And that's also why uh, bringing Kathy back, it's not just a random person who dies. It's somebody who's been touched by this power. But the way that he visualizes the wife and kids is, is through like this electrical thing instead of, you know, a giant ant leg yeah. that morphs into stuff. So their faces form an electricity, which thematically works a lot better. I don't know if it's, uh, you know, I miss the the creepier imagery, to be honest, of, of you know, this crazy fucking, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm imagining like as like the bristly hairs of of uh uh, like the fly or something or, or, you know, how giant ants look in uh, honey, I shrunk the kids yeah. or something where you just have this, mm-hmm. this giant hairy fucking leg coming out of this thing's mouth and, you know, for- reforming into the anguished faces of, of your loved ones. There's Worth almost n- a, some, a nightmare on Elm street. Like when, you know, when you see those faces twisted yes. in, the, in Freddie's stomach, like that's what I imagine. Yeah. Like, like something like that, like uh, this leg that then has these faces appearing out of it. And, and, I would I would have to you know go in that direction because I, I or the creepy it, once again another fan, uh, not phantasm another uh, poltergeist two reference like it always creeps me out the end of that movie whenever like Carol Ann's they're all fighting in that weird nether void or whatever and Carol Ann touches the the uh, evil being and it like sucks her dry and like turns oh, her into like this yeah. mummified corpse for a second yep. you know then they they save her or whatever but like that that image has always stuck with me and and I get kind of that feeling of like oh fuck no you know when uh when i read that that thing isn't there a tentacle with faces in that too or is it just like the the one that giger designed yeah 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 it's like the body of the of the thing and it's got like the the grandma and you know all that stuff yeah also worth noting that in flanagan's version you know he doesn't skimp on the ants Ants are a recurring oh, motif yeah. throughout. Ants are everywhere. Yeah, it, it keeps coming up it, in the script. And then it, it opens. You know how the, the sequence uh, where uh, Jamie meets 
Reverend Jacobs for the first time. Yeah. You described it as a Night of the Hunter thing, which is very apt because he sees the silhouette of him right. coming up. It's a kid playing with his army toys. And uh, what Flanagan does is he has him playing next to an anthill and the Perfect. the ants are covering the, you know, a lot of the toys and, and stuff. And and uh, and the ants are recurring throughout the, the book and uh in in flanagan's thing because the that's another thing like electricity is always in jamie's life there's always a mention of ants somewhere you know like a line of ants crawling to you know something under his bed or he has like a you know like old food or something under his bed and there's always ants represented there but flanagan definitely takes it up a notch yeah and then there's that flashback at the end where you get like a brief glimpse of jamie playing in the yard again just as he was in the opening only this time when the shadow falls over him, it's like a monstrous thing. And you know, you know what shape it's going to yeah. be. It's going to be a giant fucking ant, baby. Yep. Yep. You know, we know. <laughs> yeah. So so you do get a little bit of that ant content in uh, yeah. in his version. They just they just don't show the uh, the null. I think that's a smart choice. I think that's a it's you know, I, I hadn't really considered, you know, the degree to which one might not show it. But I think as we're talking about it, I, I just think that's a. You know, nothing's ever going to live up to one's own imagination. That's especially true. In a, especially in a film. It's very true. And especially with whatever budget they were going to throw at this thing. That's the other thing I'm, I'm curious about, if you can talk about that at all. Because he said, you know, in his, in his you know, interviews that where he talked about not doing it, that the budget was just too big. And is that because of the different time periods and de-aging? I don't really know. Like, we've talked to him briefly about this, but I think he explained why it wasn't going forward and it was the normal bullshit but i don't remember it sharply enough to feel like i can speak on it like i don't feel like it's my story to tell yeah, um, yeah of course, but i i would definitely like to get into it with him about that a little more uh, a little more explicitly and i'm very curious to see if somebody else does it you know i'd be i'd be hard pressed to imagine a better version of it than yeah. than what i read i'm not saying that's impossible but i mean i i really love the script yeah you got to you got to go to your a24 peeps i think those are the only people out there that would actually make something this you know this uh, this kind of yeah existentially dreadful i mean i could see I could see like uh, Elijah's company, like SpectreVision, attacking this with glee, but you know, but you need an A twenty four budget to right. know, to get the right actors, right. like you were saying, and yeah. to get you know, because this needs to be a triple A title, like that. That's the way you sell this thing and kind of make it an all timer. Is you you end it the way you end it, but it's not you know a cast of TV actors or whatever. It's like it's holy shit, this is a movie movie. That's kind of why I went to Brad Pitt. It was like just go yeah, go no, straight I, to the movie star. Great call. As a as a means for, you know, it's your insurance for that ending. You know, it's it's your your, right. it's your insurance policy to make sure that you can get to where the movie needs to get to. Because there's no point in making this if you're not gonna end it that way. No. It, it really is it's, it's yeah if you soften you, the, the, the whole ending, thing's built around getting that yeah. thing. Yeah. If you soften also, it in any way it ruins it. I think that's also why I really wanted to keep the the the, the sort of the tension of belief and not and, and disbelief and, and faith mm. and losing faith alive a little bit longer because that's so prevalent in our everyday lives these days and our our, our our relationship with our families. You know, I'm I'm from a very religious family and and that you know sense of like disappointing my parents because I've chosen to reject so much of what they hold dear is something that is very personal yeah. to me and and. And making a film that plays upon that tension, I think, would allow it to actually go further and to invite a wider audience in before, once again, you just completely fuck them up at the ending and pull the rug out from under them. But nonetheless, you'd want to sort of like 
almost play this as a movie that maybe will offer more hope. God's not dead God's version not dead. of revival. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and then resultingly, the horror will be that much more profound. Now, in terms of King projects, I, I want to bring this up. This has nothing to do with revival, but I think this will be of interest to our listeners. In setting up this episode, we learned that at one point you were pitching yourself for a different King adaptation. Um, yes. Which one was that? Let it's the people the know. The jaunt. The jaunt. Which, which is, you know, from the moment I read it, I think it's always been my favorite uh, King short story. It's the one that is rewarded rereading again and again over the years and never fails to just chill me to my core. And for many of the same reasons that Revival does, and especially the way you uh, described uh, Mike Flanagan's adaptation, which is that there's so much you don't know at the end of the jaunt, and that's what makes it mm -hmm. so incredibly terrifying. Can you extrapolate a little bit on what exactly you did to pitch yourself for this project? I've just checked in every, you know, probably once a year to see if the rights are available. And they've never been available until at one point, I would say, right after we shot The Green Knight, actually. I checked in and they were, they had just become available. And so I quickly, you know, wrote a letter to King's agent, which I think was then passed on to him, uh, about how I would love to do it and what I would do with it, what my take on it would be. I had sort of like a one or two page treatment and it was received favorably. But the one downside was that I was about to go make another film and I had to admit that I wouldn't be able to turn my attention to this to give it the, the attention it deserved for another probably at least 18 months. And, uh, and because of that, it slipped away and uh, I know it's now in development somewhere else. But I, I hold mm -hmm. out hope that one day, one day I'll get to return to that. It's, <laughs> Does that mean it's, you'd be unwilling to talk about what your what your take on the material was? Yeah, I'm going to hold off on it. But it would be <laughs> it would be it would be very it would be very true to the nature of the short story. I think there's definitely a feature film's worth of material in there. But it would go a little further than the short story. I'll put it that way. But without you know without ruining mm -hmm. or giving the answers that the short story is so beautifully deprived us of they're developing that as a series now and i cannot for the life of me understand how that works as a series as a limited series maybe if you wanted to really 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 extrapolate it out but that's one of those short stories where i'm like this is a perfect movie it's got the greatest punchline ever you've got the the sci-fi reality of the future you know balanced against the down home kind of scenes where where the dudes like inventing the the jaunt technology it's so great just the process of scientific discovery as relayed in the short story is I, I i relish every bit of that but it makes sense as a feature it doesn't make sense to me as like an ongoing series like what the fuck are you it'd be like making a a TV series about Portal, the video game. I don't see how it how it works. Uh, of course, we wish them luck with that. Yeah, we, wish them we, luck. You're yes. using it as a jumping off point. Like, and, and it's, I worked on another yeah, script at one exactly. point about teleportation because I love the jaunt so much. I just wanted to make a teleportation thing. And ultimately, I set that aside because I realized what I really want to do is the jaunt. And then unless I can do that, I might as well just <laughs> do it. But in doing that, you start to, you know, unpack questions about how teleportation would change the world. And there's definitely a series worth of material in that concept, but you would have to leave what makes the jaunt so good. You'd have to leave that behind very quickly. Yeah. That's not even the jaunt. That's just a teleportation thing. Exactly. Which it's is what you're saying. Steve, but it's putting yeah. Stephen King's name on a teleportation series. Yeah, for real. That's the lawnmower man that's of, the, 
of, <laughs> of John uh, adaptations. We have harangues Ryan Johnson on more than one occasion about our belief that he should tackle oh, this property. Yeah, I'm going to tell you right. Be- I'm going to tell you right now. Best friendship over with Ryan Johnson on the John. Now David Lowry doing the John is my new best friend. That's <laughs> well, what we need. Sorry, Ryan. I hope but... that friendship endures and proves uh, fruitful. Someday. <laughs> oh, he's taken worse abuse from us. <laughs> Dragula. <laughs> you uh, are a listener. If yes. um, okay, so uh, you know this is going to be a hack question here at the end of this, but let's say you can't get the jaunt. You know, are, are there any other King properties you'd be interested in, in tackling? And by the way, you know, this, I, uh, this, this, yet. your answer to this question will change once you've read the dark tower, but, but yes, go ahead. I, I suspect it will. I suspect it will, <laughs> but nothing yet. And, and I'm diving back into him more lately. Cause I just like, I do want to make a horror film so badly and, and I'm thinking of original ideas all the time, but I also am always like, you know, why worry about originality when there's a lot of great material out there? <laughs> Not to not to mm-hmm. not to be too lazy about it, but I do. You know, I am diving back into King a lot more these days, trying to see if there's anything out there that I haven't read that I would like to to crack. I personally would have loved to do um, the dark uh, half, but uh, my friend Alex Ross Perry is working on that. So I, I, mm-hmm. I is that still through. happening? It's, it's been it's a, in, yeah, it's in the works. It's, it's been uh, a minute since we heard anything about that, and I've been no, wondering still, about it. Still, still moving moving along as, as much as i as far as i know and i'm very excited for his version of it uh and i think it's great but i you know that's one that i've always loved and uh and i'm glad a friend got to it i heard a thing about that once i don't know if it's true um i've been repeating it as though it's true so i hope i'm not an asshole but the rumor i heard was that perry was going to gender flip it blink your eyes twice if that's correct very well i've received your response Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we have found ourselves at the end of this uh, monumental recording. It's is there hour anything? Is there anything besides the Dark Tower that I should read or reread? In you oh. know, I, I recently picked up the Tommyknockers again, thinking like maybe that. W- and I was like, no, it's not the right one. Uh, hey man, I'm, why no. not? Why don't you go balls out? Go get yourself a copy of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Read Crouch End. You like cosmic horror? You want to do a horror movie? Go to King doing Lovecraft. Make a movie out of that short story. There's absolutely a movie in there. They adapted it once before for the Nightmares and Dreamscapes television show that was on like TNT or what the fuck ever. Not so good. You don't want to look at that. But (laughs) maybe that'll inspire you, honestly. That's a chance to do a big, gothic, really fucking weird uh, cosmic horror movie that's I, I think would absolutely work on screen and it would be no, terrifying no. if done the I will, right way. I'll read it uh, post haste. And I, I take your recommendation seriously. I recently recommended best new horror and I, I quickly picked that up and read that on the plane the other day. Mm. Oh my God. How good is that though? Right. Yeah, I was really, really, I mean, I don't want to make that myself, but it was. <laughs> <laughs> I love that short story. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. I, I could see you making a kick-ass. I don't know if you read the rest of them, but make a kick-ass 20th century ghost. I always love that story. No, I, I, Joe Hill I've only read the first, I've only read best new horror so far, but I've got the rest it's of them on my iPad now. It, it, it's a cinephile ghost story about a, uh, a movie theater, uh, a ghost that like 
show up to this movie theater like over over decades and stuff oh man it is and just watch movies and shit it's fucking awesome i used to get really bad hypnagogic sleep disorder uh and sleep paralysis Mm. and before i knew what it was i thought it was ghosts and (laughs) i worked at a movie theater for well from the time i was 16 to 24 as a projectionist and i would like take naps in the booth in between movies and and have these episodes of sleep paralysis and was convinced that it was just in fact that the movie theater was haunted and there had been murders <laughs> at that movie theater i mean scott i think you're from dallas you probably have been to the amc grand back when it was a, oh yeah oh yeah and i probably projected a movie for you and, and at some point uh and no shit. and there <laughs> Small were world again yeah early on there were there, tragically there was a, a murder in the parking lot two murders in the parking lot of that theater and, and it led me to believe that the the theater was haunted and that you know, I was being haunted in the booth, but, um, turns out it's just good old fashioned sleep paralysis. <laughs> well, and that's it, where I, if, if you're forced to like have to be a ghost in the place that you died, like fucking then. Yeah. I hope I die in a movie theater. Cause then I can just stick around and fucking watch movies all the time. It would not be it's the better worst than, place. Yeah. Not be the worst place to haunt. Fuck. Imagine be- if you died than, on an than, elevator than, and then you were just stuck <laughs> in an elevator forever. Oh, I'd be so fucking pissed. People coming in there doing farts. You know, kids coming in there hitting all the buttons and making you go to floor to floor to floor. Oh, I would haunt the shit out of those kids. I'm getting mad about a thing that doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> that's that's almost a worst after worst afterlife. The, bore, the sheer boredom of that might, uh, well, not quite trump the uh, life and servitude to giant ants, but it comes yeah. close. Indeed. Yeah, at least your soul's getting some exercise in that yeah. scenario, right? Yeah. Now, uh, your next project, you're working on Peter Pan. I got to be, yes. I got to be straight up with you. Um, there are very few filmmakers who I could hear are doing a new Peter Pan and be excited about because there have been a lot of Peter. It, it's sort of like Robin Hood. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm curious yeah, what you one. are bringing to this this new version of Peter Pan that we should be excited about. What well, do you got brewing? You can't see the video, but I currently have next to me sitting next to me a, a skeleton of a lost boy who didn't make it. Um, right on. So is this maybe a little gnarly on the gnarly side? Um, you got child skeletons. Yeah, it's it's. I love skeletons, so I always will have lots of skeletons in my movies. Um, I think that it is an enriched version of the story. We're not reinventing it. You know, I don't think there's any need to reinvent it. Much like I, I, I sort of, I think the Green Knight is very similar in that we're. I'm not changing the original text that much. Mm-hmm. I am not really messing with the source material, but I'm trying to illuminate it with my own perspective. And, and to enrich it in a way for audiences in 2021, for, in Peter Pan's case, 2022. And that's what we've done. The weirdest thing about it is that, you know, when it was first presented to me, when Disney brought it to me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing it, I had the same response, which was that it feels like it's been done a lot before. <laughs> Do we need another Peter Pan mm-hmm. film? And I personally am a big fan of the of the uh, P.J. Hogan film. It's not perfect, but I really think it's a really good adaptation of J.M. Barry's novel. But then I just started to think about what it means to me, and I just got personally invested in it. And and so all I can say is I'm bringing my own perspective to it. And it and in doing so, I realized it might be the most grown up movie I've ever made in terms of the way it's approaching its themes. Ironically being a film about a kid who doesn't want to grow up, it is a very mature take on the material. And obviously we're still shooting it. So hopefully 
I don't realize I've gone down the wrong path and changed everything in the edit. But <laughs> here, as I sit towards the end of our of our shoot, I'm about to hit day 92. I feel like for the first time I've made a grown up film. And that in and of itself is interesting to me. Hopefully it's interesting to others. But then I also really believe this to be true. It's an evergreen property like Robin Hood, like Dracula. There will be more Peter Pan films in the future. Mm-hmm. But for one specific generation, this will be their first one. And That's true. I want to make it the best version I can for that audience, for those viewers, for those people who will be introduced to a time-honored legend vis-a-vis this movie. And that's really important right. to me. Are, are you approaching it in a similar way that you did Pete's Dragon, which was kind of a, you know me, you know, I've, I fucking love Pete's Dragon. I'm sitting here looking at an animation cell yes. from Pete's Dragon that I have up on my wall. Uh, I love I love that original. That was the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater. It was a staple of my childhood. Uh, and even though I'm still disappointed that you didn't get uh, Robert Redford to sing yes, in the movie, uh, uh, I wanted him to be a drunk that sings about seeing dragons. I mean, that's kind of the, you know, th- that's all I wanted out of the remake. So I, I will forever be disappointed in that. But, you yeah. know, anybody with eyeballs can look at your remake of Pete's Dragon and go, holy shit, this is actually taking it to a real grounded level as much as a grounded movie can be, you know, about a, a kid with a giant fluffy green dragon. Um, but are you taking a similar approach? Definitely. I mean, I think I, I hesitate to use the word grounded uh, because it has fairies and flying children. But when I went to talk to the studio about it, I was like, what if we stay true to the original material, remove the problematic material, elements of both the novel and the and right. animated film, of course, but then treat it like the Revenant. What if we made the Revenant with flying kids? <laughs> and, <laughs> and they bought it and they were into it yeah and that's sort of you know wow it's, it's not 100 percent like that but that's sort of the the ethos by which we've gone about making it and through sheer like happenstance we've wound up with a lot of the same crew from the revenant because we're shooting a lot of it in vancouver uh and so i often am just saying like well how did you do that or where'd you shoot that or you know when you had the horse jump off the cliff can we can we use that same buck and we actually are i think using that same buck uh for a horse riding sequence. <laughs> uh, and, but that was, that was sort of the idea, like to have it, you know, have it be visceral, have it be grounded. It's still joyful. It's still full of exuberance and magic. And so that's why I don't like to use the word grounded, but it, you know, this I think is the first Peter Pan movie that's been shot on location as opposed to being on sound stages. Uh, mm. So that I think will, you know, on a, just on a purely aesthetic level and a sensory level, I think it'll be a, it'll have a freshness to it. I hope that, uh, that will nice. invigorate a time-honored tale. Using the Revenant as a touchstone is fucking hilarious. <laughs> when I, gentlemen, what I suggest or what I'm pitching here today is Emperor's New Groove by way of a Serbian film. Kids are gonna love this. <laughs> like that is just the the wildest two titles I've heard smashed together. But you know, I'm, I'm definitely interested in seeing it now. I hope that what we're shooting, you know, ultimately is realized the way what, what I'm seeing now. But I think this is I mean, it's my favorite movie that I've made of my own. It's my it's the one I love the most. And it's the one I've you know had the most fun making. So I hope that comes through on the, on the, in the finished product whenever it comes out, which will be hopefully, you know, just about a year from now. You uh, you're going to make people cry with this one, too. Probably. Yeah, I think I'm going back. <laughs> I, 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 I've learned my lesson. Don't do comedy. Go back to tearjerkers. I think I think. We'll, <laughs> Those notes. Pete's Dragon holds the distinction as the. I have never heard 
a movie theater sob like I heard during Pete's Dragon. And if I remember correctly, the draft house started passing out like boxes of tissues and shit oh, for, for screening of that movie because people were just just annihilated by it. My wife and I went and saw it and I did not. Ex- I, you know, I don't have um, any real nostalgia for Pete's Dragon uh, yeah. like Eric does. Um, I'm kind of I, I don't feel one way or another about it and. You know, but I was curious to see a live action version of it, but just bawling my eyes out like a like a like a little fancy lad with a skin knee by the end of it, <laughs> you know, um, and the whole theater. You've heard a theater erupt in applause or laughing. I have never heard a theater just crying uncontrollably <laughs> like they did at that movie. And it's because it was so powerful, man. You killed it. There's nothing like saying goodbye to a furry friend to yeah, really true. that gets me. And, <laughs> and so I don't think uh, Pete, Peter Pan will have quite as many tears as a result, but we definitely, I think, I think we hit some emotional notes that will resonate with people and hopefully right we'll a couple, a couple wistful tears. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. This was uh, fantastic. Oh, thank uh, you. And we, we hope to see you on a King property one day. We're excited about the ongoing success of Green Knight and are looking forward to Pete's Dragon. And read The Gunslinger. Not Pete's Dragon. Fucking Peter. No, no. Rewatch Pete's Dragon. Please. You know, it's on Disney Plus. It's available for the viewer. (laughs) Be excited for it. Is that on Disney Plus? I haven't even looked. It is. Yes. I saw that. Look, it's like a ghost story, man. I saw both of those movies once and was like, "Mm mm-mm. Not going. Yeah, it's <laughs> like I love those movies so much. Ten out of ten. Just cannot say enough good things about them, but also just emotionally <laughs> shattering. A ghost story. I don't know if I will ever watch again. That one fucked me up so bad. I don't think my wife ever saw it. And I on a couple of occasions, I've been like, oh, we should check out a ghost story. But I don't know that I want to put her through that. This this sounds like I'm I'm complaining and I'm absolutely not. It's uh, it's it's a testament to the power of the filmmaking. It really really is. Some movies are you know there's a lot of movies out there and if you get all you need out of of one viewing then you know that's great. You have time for something else. Discover (laughs) something new. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been I'm you know long time listener, so it's a thrill to get to do this. Of course, happy to have you. Many thanks to David Lowry for that great episode. Man, I had such a blast talking about Revival, especially with that dude. Yeah, I've been waiting for an excuse to do a Revival episode for a while now. And uh, I can't imagine topping it after recording that one. Just what a delight that guy is and uh, fascinating to talk to. No, he's great. And uh, the fact that he he ended that whole thing by describing his upcoming Peter Pan movie as What If the Revenant But With Flying Kids. <laughs> yeah. just like if you weren't in love with that dude already then you sure as well were by the by the time he said that for real so do you want to tell everybody what the title is for next week scott yes 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 i would love to um next week we are going with a uh a classic king title uh we will be diving back into the dead zone which we previously took on sometime last year. I think it was toward the end of last summer because we, we spoke with Alex Winter about it last time. Right. And uh, that was around the time Bill and Ted came out. Yeah, we're going back to the dead zone. Our original take on the dead zone was a little more Cronenberg heavy. This one leans a little more to King's side. And we're going to be doing that with a guest who I was super, super duper excited to talk to this guy. One of my favorite character actors, I will say. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. He uh, he has worked with some of the biggest filmmakers in the world. Brian De Palma, David Lynch. Who am I forgetting? The Coen brothers. He worked with the Coen brothers. This guy rules. And he had quite a time recording this episode with us. And we had quite a time recording it with him. So uh, we'll be getting back into the case of Johnny and his psychic powers uh, next Wednesday in the main feed. Tell them what we're doing. Well, I guess I guess we've already said this on the Twitter, but go ahead and remind them what we're doing this Friday on the, on the bonus. Sure. So uh, those who thanks. listen that don't follow us obsessively on social media, uh, this Friday on our Patreon, we are doing our review of Billy Summers, the new Stephen King novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and we aren't just doing it by our, our lonesome. Uh, we are bringing in the great Bev Vincent, uh, who is absolutely the foremost authority on King, uh, who isn't married to the man or the man himself. <laughs> let's, <laughs> yes. Let's put it that way. And, uh, you know, he, we've had Bev on the show before and we just couldn't resist asking if he wanted to kind of dive into the nitty gritty on the latest Stephen King book with us. And, you know, thankfully he said yes. So, so that will be this Friday on our Patreon, us and Bev Vincent kind of breaking down the new Stephen King book. Um, and if you want to listen to that, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Kingcast. And um, yeah, you'll get that episode on Friday and all the back episodes that we've recorded over the last year and some change. And that Billy Summers episode will have spoilers, folks. This is a full discussion of the book. We can't get through it without doing spoilers. But I don't think that one's going to be too big of a problem because everywhere I've right. turned on Twitter lately, people are reading Billy Summers. You know, right. uh, we've heard from a lot of our listeners that picked that up over the last week. And uh, man, I blew through it in two sittings. I I love that book. It's uh, a page turner. Yeah, Kim's on fire right now. It's, Isn't uh, he? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's just knocking them out again, which is great. I imagine that we'll probably start off a little spoiler light at the beginning mm-hmm. um, and then mm-hmm. uh, and then really dive deep. So even if you haven't finished it, you know, you know, maybe uh, give it a listen at the beginning and we'll, we'll let you know when when the uh, the big spoilers are coming. Yeah, that sounds about right. I can agree yeah. to that. So is that it? I think that might be it. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're all talked right. out after that episode, folks. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we got to go. uh contemplate our own mortality and whatever uh ant driven fate we have in store we got to go cry in a corner somewhere yes Um, exactly but yeah so we'll see you guys next week for the dead zone and uh for our patreon subscribers we'll uh talk some billy summers this friday see you then folks the Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>